Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore Geek, episode 133. I'm Andrew. And I'm Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Starship Enterprise. What's your yes. continuing mission? To uh, seek out new worlds and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one, because we are gender neutral out here, has gone before. Nice. So today we are going to be expanding, I guess, a little bit on our Star Trek discussion from a little while ago. And we're going to be talking about the next generation films, in part because they don't get a whole lot of love and just in general in conversation. And... And I know Dude hadn't seen him in a while, and I hadn't I hadn't seen a couple of them in, in quite a while. So it, it, we thought it was worth diving back into. And, you know, we've, we've both been going back and rewatching Star Trek The Next Generation. So yep. it, it just seemed fitting. Season six right now. That's a good season. We just yeah, got to really... the we just got to the season four, season five finale premiere. Oh, OK. With the, the that's the Mark Twain one. No, no that's, that's the Klingons. Six, six. Oh, that is a good one. That's yeah, it one. is. Civil War. That stuff is great. Yeah, it is. I got I just finished um, Birthright where we're kind of a mini crossover between them and DS9. Yep. And Worf finds the, the Klingon prison camp yeah. where they're kind of living in peace and Worf is super racist. Yeah. Like, oh my, I don't remember that at all. Like, that took me by surprise. I was like, oh my God, he's bad. Yeah, that, there, there's a few things that have caught me off guard in, in, in watching this again. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. It's not that I didn't like it. I thought it added like a really interesting Talking dimension. Point. Yeah. Yeah, just a different dimension to the character. It didn't kind of make him a all-encompassing, lovable character. It gave him a flaw, like a deep, like serious flaw. That makes sense. Yeah, considering his past, but it's still like, oh, that's on, it's distasteful, but it worked because it's, but it also feels genuine. So I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. But like, whoa, Worf is super racist. Yeah. So but before we get into that, uh, we do have a couple things we were going to talk about. Uh, first off, something we probably should have picked up a couple weeks ago, and I think we just missed in in the the chaos of of our lives mm-hmm. is that Brian Michael Bendis has announced that he is leaving Marvel Comics and has signed an exclusive deal over at DC. So for those... Judas! Judas! Yeah. So some people are actually referring to this as the biggest change, the biggest defection in comics, if you will, since Jack Kirby went to work for DC in the 70s. Hmm. And, you know, this is a big deal. The things that Bendis has done for Marvel cannot be understated. And certainly the man has his detractors, like... Pretty much anyone in comics does. But he has been instrumental in creating a number of important characters and important runs in comics for Marvel. You talk about Alias, where he created Jessica Jones, or his run on Ultimate Spider-Man, which eventually culminated in the creation of Miles Morales. He had runs on Avengers, on X-Men. He did Avengers Disassembled, House of M, Secret Invasion, Civil War II, the Age of Ultron comic series. This is a man who has done a ton of things for Marvel and it's really interesting to see him leave and there's a lot of speculation that he is leaving because Marvel was not giving him much input or much creative anything in in their film series and if you look there are a number of comic writers who are involved in these movies DC's a little bit better about this and that's again part of the speculation but you know Jeff Loeb and Jeff Johns do a lot for DC where Marvel it really is with the Marvel Studios head I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name here and then also Fage? no not Fage. uh no yeah kevin Fage. Fage, thank you and joe casada fig is the guy who did who did the ghostbusters movie sorry yeah. no kevin Fage, who is uh the head of marvel studios and joe casada who used to be marvel's editor-in-chief and is now the chief creative officer for marvel mm-hmm. and the two of them really kind of seem to run most of it you know i mean there's nothing wrong with you know bendis doing something different getting doing a little bit of a change i think we can all understand that you know he's written 
very near every Marvel character, certainly almost every major Marvel character out there. Mm-hmm. I think the Fantastic Four, in any considerable amount, is probably one of the few he hasn't messed with. But, you know, so I can understand him wanting to try Batman or Superman or, you know, whomever. And I think he can do a lot of good things at DC. But as one of the articles I had read pointed out, you know, typically when they sign these kinds of exclusivity deals, mm-hmm. they've already been working for the company for a while. Mm-hmm. Ones that I can I can think of and someone we've had on the podcast, actually two two individuals who did it together are Tom King and Mitch Garrods. Mm-hmm. Both of them had been working for DC for a while, and then obviously they also had their own title with Vertigo, a, a DC imprint, mm-hmm. and then they signed exclusive deals with DC. Right. Or the other time it happens, if they're kind of a, a hot-running, young, new person, which to an extent is Tom and Mitch both kind of fall into that to an extent, but you know they don't tend to be Brian Michael Bendis-level people unless they've been working with the company for a while. So him doing this out of the blue tells me, and, and several people I've talked to, including our friend Chris, that that something's going on behind the scenes here. It's possible. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't sound like anything I would say is bad blood, but certainly there is some some level of discontent. It could be, or really, uh, do we have any details on what the deal is that he has with them? Because it could just be one of those things where DC, it basically could use a sports analogy, and how dare I use a sports analogy when it comes to comic books and geek stuff, but this is a big free agent signing for DC, that they just, they just gave him a deal that he could not turn down. Do we have any speculation on that? I mean, it's possible. The only reason I, w- I would be a little hesitant on that one is just because of how much of a champion for Marvel Bendis has been up until basically this announcement mm-hmm. right he really has been drinking the kool-aid for lack of a better term <laughs> at marvel i mean he really he really has like he is he is one of the guys who helped really bring marvel out of the 90s and into into the 2000s into dominance in, in a way that they hadn't been in a long time and you know some of that certainly has fallen off in the last couple of years last maybe two years i would say mm-hmm. but yeah dc is i mean it, certainly they offered him something good as, as they put it they offered him a multi-year multi-faceted deal mm. dc actual tweet is we are beyond thrilled to welcome Brian Michael Bendis exclusively to the DC family with a multi-year multifaceted deal he's one of the premier writers in the industry having created so many unforgettable stories wherever he's been and we can't wait to see what he has planned for the DC universe do we have reaction from DC fans you know most comic book fans there's a bit of overlap between the two of them but there are people who prefer DC and Vice Marvel do we have reaction from people who are like avid DC readers what they feel about this yeah, from the impression, I haven't seen a whole lot, but the impression I'm getting is that it's pretty positive. Again, mm-hmm. I mean, just scrolling through some of the, the, the responses on Twitter. So these are people who follow DC's Twitter. So mm-hmm. they are at least fans of the company. They're generally pretty pretty positive saying, you know, this is a good move for the company. Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Well, we will see. Yeah, I, I am really curious to see what he starts working on. Real quick before we get into Star Trek, let's talk about the box office from this weekend. Because yeah, our, we, this fun block box office talk. What's <laughs> poor Justice League? Well, yeah, so we, we, we just kind of wanted to follow up with Justice League here because, again, we were really curious to see what word of mouth would do for this film. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's done a whole lot. Uh, or, or and by oh, not a whole lot, we mean like <laughs> not at all. I wouldn't say none at all. I, I would say it's kept it average you know we've seen some other films have 
fairly precipitous drop-offs. And Justice League this weekend is looking to pull in just under $41 million. So we are looking at a 56.6% drop in the box office, according to Box Office Mojo, which is honestly about average for a superhero film. Yeah, historically, superhero films don't have good legs. And you're going to see these 50 to 60% drops. And Justice League is right in there in accordance with history. So if there was any kind of, and we'll t- maybe we'll talk about it in a second, this kind of strange push to get people to go see it and then see it again and again and again, it didn't have any measurable effect. And I, I have a feeling that in just a couple of weeks, this is just going to disappear. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think word of mouth has kept this film like I said, in in an average place. I mean, you look at Man of Steel, which I think is a more critically liked film mm-hmm. that had an all, a nearly 70% drop off week one mm-hmm. to week two. Yeah. So I think the word of mouth is helping at least slow the bleeding, if you will. Uh, I don't even know if I want to go that far. I, th- I think this is just Justice League. It's fair to say I think Justice League is just going to go the way of most superhero films. I think it's just we're going to three, four weeks. It's just going to fade off into nothing. Yeah. I mean, and the problem with that is with the money that DC put into it, that's a real. Yeah. That's a real hurt. Right. And it, we, we talk about Thor when Thor had like a 50% drop, you know, that was still $60 million on a $120 million, $122 million opening. Right. This was a almost 60% drop on a $94 million opening. Yeah. I say so it's, wor- are... it's worth noting that I think it was Monday or Tuesday, Warner Brothers actually revised the opening numbers down by 2 million. Was yeah. We were... were saying 96 on our last show. Yeah, and then a couple days later, I had sent you an article that was 90, 94 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, grand total for Justice League is coming to seven, uh, $171 million mm-hmm. on, again, what is expected to be somewhere in the $250 million budget range. Right. And honestly, internationally... That was another article we, we posted about where the, that budget was, because that was kind of shrouded in mystery. Internationally, like where... this isn't doing that that hot either. It's only $309 mm-hmm. million internationally. And that gives it a global cum of about one. Uh, 481.3 million. Yeah, which is just, it's not enough for this film. No. Not, no, not for that kind of budget. Almost. No, and that was the thing about Batman vs. Superman and, and Suicide Squad, is they both turned profits, but they were tight margins of profit. Yes. Uh, and Suicide Squad came in, I think it was, I think we mentioned it last week, maybe about 500, 5 million under Batman vs. Superman. It really does kind of amaze me, because I guess Wonder Woman was really just a bloop. I think the, the Justice League, Batman vs. Superman, I guess, left such a bad taste in a lot of fans pallets that they they really weren't going to turn out for this one and they clearly they clearly didn't no certainly not the way they did the previous two and excluding wonder woman yeah so i did want to bring up this funny thing someone had mentioned it to me i don't know if you saw it on twitter and i'm not on twitter a lot but six for six i don't know if it's a hashtag or just kind of a push on twitter because the movie's not doing well and it's objectively not doing well and the DC Extended Universe, certainly the creative team is going to get a huge turnover, and it's very possible they'll dump the Extended Universe in favor of a lot of solo films with minor crossover characters. That's certainly a possibility. I don't, I don't think they're they're gonna. I don't think drop they will. the whole. I don't think they're gonna drop the whole Justice League franchise. I mean, they might drop. They may. I don't know. But I think the extended universe will be around. Just maybe the Justice League franchise or that aspect of it is gonna. I don't. I don't know that they down. will push through with a whole ton more Justice League films. I think there will be a a dark side Justice League film. 
because that's of certainly the, a possibility. The they, they set it up and they're already deep into it. And as you and I well know, that Hollywood doesn't understand the sunken fallacy cost, or the, the sunk cost fallacy. They'll just power through something. But well, Hollywood also doesn't turn very easily either. No, no, unless unless they fire this guy at who's um on top of Warner Brothers. That's really the only thing I see change. We'll see. I'm really curious. But the Twitter thing was six for six, which basically the way they got this phrase was see the movie six times because it's not doing well and the franchise is in trouble six times because there's six heroes and those six heroes have been there for the fans for years and years and years so it's now it's time for the fans to come out and see them that aside for a second it's very hard for you to find someone who is willing to see a movie six times in a theater but both of us are nerds enough and we love movies enough that we have come close to this number on certain movies yeah. so are there movies where you have seen it almost six times maybe even more because people will see them once or twice in the theater occasionally three but you, you when you hit the four five six range you're a serious fan there's something you really liked about it yeah i would have to say that the ones that are coming to mind for me are the i think i saw episode two of the the new star of the prequel trilogy on star wars i think i saw that five times mm-hmm. i think i saw revenge of the sith four i want to say i saw avengers three or four times mm-hmm. you know no one no one quite stacks up to uh to Pat Loika on that one, but... <laughs> what was his number? 23, I think, for Avengers. In the theater? In the theater. Wow, He yeah, he really liked I, that and, movie. And that, and that may be... I may be short on that number. Pat saw it an insane number of times. That is love right there. It is. That's true love. That is true love. No, I he, very he, rarely... he actually He actually set up several screenings, like oh, okay. group screenings. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, I very rarely see a movie more than once in the theater, especially now at my age and especially at these ticket prices. Just just because one, I don't have the time for it, and two, I just never feel like it was worth it. The last movie I saw twice in theaters was Force Awakens, uh, and that was just because I saw it with friends, and, and the girl wanted to see it, so I took her to see it afterwards. But there are two movies in my mind that stick out prominently as movies that I went back to the theater to see it multiple times because I loved them that much, and that was Return of the King, which I... I saw twice in one day. I woke up in the morning with a group of friends, saw like the 10 o'clock show. We went to get lunch at Wendy's and went right back to the theater and saw it again. It was like twice in one day. And then we, I think the total number of that was maybe five or six. And the other one was a movie called Garden State that came out, oh, I think 2003. I want to say it's maybe the summer of 2004. I'm not really sure. And again, it was one of those movies, a group of us, we just kept going. And it wasn't even me in different groups. It was the same group of guys, the same group of friends. We loved that movie so much. We had to have seen it together i know i saw it with them four maybe five and they like a number of them saw it on their own like an additional two or three times in the theater so that we could have gotten to six or seven with that one alone yeah that's that's when you know you really love a movie when you're when you're young when you're that age like your late teens late late high school early college you just love movies to the point you just you're gonna see them over and over again yeah Nowadays, it's like that was really before the age of like hardcore piracy. It was really it was not really that easy to get movies online. And now that you can do it so easily, it's like why why bother? You know, see it once for the experience, and then you just download it. Eh, I mean, I still if I like a movie enough, I'll see it more than once. But it just it's rare that I like a movie enough 
that I feel the yeah. need to. Or now with the baby, there have been times where I've come to I've gone to see a movie like like with Thor. I saw it so we could do the podcast, right. and then about a week later, Becky's mother watched the baby so we could we could go together. Of course, yeah, of course. So yeah, there's like there's like circumstances where you see it multiple times, but then there's that kind of feeling of true love. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. You just see it because God, that movie got you. It got you right in the soft Jimmy spot, right in the Jimmies, right in the Fifis, and it's like I gotta see this again. I need that feeling. It's like a drug. I need to I need that hit again. Ah, all right, and it's never the same. You hit that point where it's like it's not the same anymore. No, it's a tragedy. Uh, and then you never watch the film again. <laughs> you never see, like I haven't seen Return of the King or Garden State in years. Cause I got my fix. So I got my fix. All right. So we're back. So we're talking about movies, watching them multiple times. Here's movies we've watched multiple times for your edification. So we did that big history of Star Trek podcast, and it got me thinking about the four next-gen movies. Because, again, you were both watching the next-gen show at the same time and running through the series. I, I get play play in the background. I'm playing Star Trek online. And I really wanted to, like, re-explore the next-gen movies because I remember actually having negative memories of these movies. Yeah. And thinking, you know what, maybe I should go back and give them another try and really try and be a little more objective about how I looked at them. So and I hadn't seen these movies probably since they came out. Maybe I saw one or two of them on the television. So it was really like seeing a lot of them. It was like seeing them again. I was surprised how much I remembered from them. Yeah, that that's what would surprise me. They, they're pretty straightforward and they're not in there. There's nothing like deep that you miss. But I, I do kind of have softened my opinion on them. I don't think they were as awful as I thought they were. But, you know, I don't also don't think they were as good as they should have been, especially a few of them. So let's just start with uh, Star Trek generations this is the seventh film yep. in the series we came out in 1994 they filmed it like, right after they finished filming the tv show so they just yes. went right into it they went just boom right and, into it. I, and it's worth noting that the same guys who wrote this script also wrote the script for the series finale which i think most fans will argue is significantly better than the movie Yes. Yeah, it's directed by a guy named David Carson, produced by Rick Berman, who's kind of like Mr. Star Trek, uh, as far as a producer is concerned, at least in this era. And then the screenplay is by Donald Moore and Brandon, or Brand, Brandon, Brandon, Brandon Braga. Braga. And the plot of this one, I mean, well, first off, let's just go into how he felt about it, because I remember being disappointed when I first saw it. I saw it again, and now I'm still slightly disappointed in it, just because I felt that this was a movie that had a lot of missed opportunities opportunities it wasn't necessarily bad certainly the first half of the film i thought was pretty good but i don't feel it delivered what it could have as a star trek movie what did you think yeah i don't think it was it's bad you know for being conceptually sold as the first next generation movie mm -hmm. it really is more of a buddy film between picard and kirk who don't even really get together until the right. third act the very you know right. beginning of the third right. act i mean I, I have fond memories of seeing this as a kid with my dad Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. But I don't know. It just, this one always kind of felt left me feeling like I wanted a little bit more out of it. Right. And that's exactly the way I felt. It just didn't deliver in the third act. And I think part of it was, one, I think the concept is a little weird. The idea is you've got this character named Soren, played by Malcolm McDowell of Clockwork Orange fame, who wants to get back to this, they call it, a, I guess, a subspace phenomenon, this ribbon that travels through space. And if you go into it, it takes you to what is essentially heaven. That's basically the premise, and Soren desperately wants to get back into this. 
And it's weird because when the characters fail initially to stop Soren, this is when Picard finds Shatner and then they could just kind of leave the ribbon. There's like weird rules to how this works. Yeah, it's a little inconsistent. Yeah, it doesn't follow its own rules. And I think that kind of took me out of it. But I think the primary problem I had with it is what they did with the Kirk character was that here's a character we've seen for now six movies. This is the seventh he's in. He's the greatest starship captain in the canon's history, or at least in their in their in their history and the climax of the movie is three 60 plus year old senior citizens in a fist fight on a canyon and What's funny is that Picard brings Kirk back to help him, and each time Picard has to bail Kirk out from almost dying. Like, there's, like, two instances where, like, he almost dies and Picard has to, like, turn around and save him. It felt like the way they shot it, it felt like Kirk was more of a hindrance than a help. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, I can see it. I mean, I, I actually really liked Kirk in this one. Especially, I loved the opening with the, yes, en- the, with the Enterprise B. Mm-hmm. Especially the Tuesday joke. Yes, that had that... That, re- that, that one, wasn't... That, that one also that never... Great. I use that one at work and it never gets old. <laughs> no, that was great. It was funny to me because I noticed this watching it because I've watched it really carefully is that the opening sequence kind of had the the zip and tightness to it that I feel Star Trek VI had. And then that kind of disappears with the next-gen cast. And then it comes back when Shatner re-enters the picture. You know, part of me kind of wonders, especially with the two-hour runtime, like an actual mm-hmm. two-hour runtime instead of a, a yeah. television two-hour runtime, mm-hmm. if they just they didn't know how to fill the, the space because it, it really just slows yeah. down and drags. It's really that's really a possibility, and I and I know where you're where you're getting at, and not just that. It was they also didn't seem to know how to u- utilize the kind of second tier level characters. Is we had plenty with Kirk and Picard and Data, and then Doctor Crusher is barely in it. Counselor Troy has very little to do except pilot the crashing ship. You know, Riker and Worf have that one moment where they fight the Klingons, but there wasn't kind of an even. And you know, Jordy gets captured, but there wasn't. An even distribution of relevant things for the second tier cast to do. Yeah, and it I, didn't seem like they had their footing on it yet. Yeah, I also thought it was a little bit odd for them to bring back the Sisters of Duras. Oh, yeah. That, I kind of liked it, though. I mean, I, I always like the characters just because Klingon villains tend to be so, especially like the Sisters of Duras, Duras, Galron, like those characters yeah. tend to be so over the top. They're just kind of fun. Yes. But it was like, it felt like we're doing this new thing, but we have to bring back other old characters, mm. old villains, so that you still remember we're doing Star Trek The Next Generation. That's an interesting point. The way, that's a good way, that's one way of feeling about it. The way I felt about it was that this was kind of a bookend movie like it kind of an end of an era because we crashed the enterprise you blow up the duras sisters who were kind of a not an ever-present threat but kind of a recurring threat in the series sure and then we we kill off kirk so I, the way I viewed it, and I'm not saying the way you viewed it was wrong, but the way my interpretation of that was, they're kind of putting that stuff to bed. That's the way. That's just the way I saw it. Okay, I can I, I can uh, see that too. But what I would rather have seen was them utilizing Kirk better. That's just really where my big beef with the film was. It's just that him in a fist fight, in an old dude fist fight on a deserty planet like it looked kind of like arizona i don't know where they filmed it just didn't deliver the oomph that i was hoping it would because you know to me like you know you could basically have had the same plot and you know what in the canon scotty and spock are actually in that era you know i just i at the time i had watched that the movie i had just finished the episode where they find scotty on the dyson sphere right uh Spock is Ambassador Spock, and okay, find some clever way to bring Kirk in the timeline, put the band back together, have them work with the next-gen crew. 
I don't know, do the saucer separation and have them battle, you know, three House of Duras, Birds of Prey, and that kind of exciting, because the, the battle wasn't that exciting. And I know it's in the no. 90s, and they, they, they couldn't, but it, I wish it were. And then, you know, the old team could have sacrificed themselves in the lower section with the warp core breached and saved the day, and it would blow up, and it knocked the saucer into the planet, and then, boom, you have basically the same ending. It just would have been more heroic in my mind, instead of the way they did this one. Yeah. No, so it wasn't that it was bad, it was just kind of a lost opportunity to me. I do like the beginning. I like the beginning a lot. Yeah. So let's move on to First Contact. Now, this one's interesting, because I saw this one a long time ago, and I didn't really care for it. Whereas this is my favorite of the four, this is by far. Your favorite of the by, by far. Like, by a margin, right? Yes. wide margin i'll start with the two things i really like about it the score is fantastic the score is really really great i i, I uh, actually i have i have personal and somewhat emotional connections to the opening opening chorale oh really yeah we, like the, we, we the used title to use sequence it as, I, oh, okay we used to use it as a warm-up in when i was in, in band in in school did you and, really yeah and i can i can i can still close my eyes and hear that music and put myself right back on that stage did you enjoy it or did you get sick of it after you hearing it for a while oh no i love it oh I yeah no, I, I, okay good because i I still like the score, and I enjoy the first like ten minutes of the movie. I think it, they're pretty darn compelling. After that, I have a hard time finding something I like. I'd be curious to see what how you feel about it. I mean, again, in general, I really enjoy this one. I do think that this this is when they finally got the Borg the way they wanted them to look. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the, I mean, I'm, like visually, I mean, like the look, the feel. Sure, this is the first time we get Borg vision. Yeah, the yes. Borg the Borg Queen is a little bit of an odd introduction, yeah, well, well, and I'm it's somewhat 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 antith- uh, antithetical to the general concept of the Borg. Yep, yep. Um, I agree. I understand from a narrative perspective why they had to do it mm-hmm. because, you know, the Borg is a nameless, faceless mm-hmm. villain executing this particular plot doesn't work as well mm-hmm. if there's not someone trying to pull the strings. I know you hate time travel. Yep. I really like this one. Mm-hmm. Especially because you get to see Zephram Cochran, this character who we've heard about repeatedly since the original series. Mm-hmm. We see Zephram Cochran as basically not who we think he is. He's not right. this great guy who's out looking out for the, the betterment of humanity. He is a guy who wants to earn a quick buck and retire on a, to an island with naked women. Right. And and he's he's a drunk. And James Cromwell does a, a fantastic job with the character, I thought. And he's been in a couple of next-gen episodes. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, James Cromwell is—he's because he's just a, a character actor in general. He shows up in a couple of Next Gen episodes. He ends up in a couple of DS9 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm almost, pretty much always in in heavy makeup. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I've always, I always enjoy him as an actor. But no, I, I really enjoy in, enjoy this. I also like the idea of finding Picard's soft spot mm-hmm. because you know throughout almost the entire series Picard is nearly unflappable mm-hmm. there is very little that that gets to him and we, we see we see some of that in the beginning of generations which I thought was great when he loses his family right but here we see an entirely different one where Picard gets angry right and he, he's he's looking for vengeance and he won't admit that he's looking for vengeance right and and not only is he angry he loses control mm-hmm. like he is so fixated on on that vengeance that he he is I mean, single-minded and just cannot function otherwise mm-hmm. and cannot see what's right in front of him right yeah that, that that is a decent that is an interesting i get you're right i i hate the whole time travel aspect of it and i remember in the theater watching it the first time there's this big board battle and they blow the cube up and i went oh that was pretty intense now and that what? was all the stuff you saw in the trailer and you're like yeah what's gonna happen next is he gonna get crazy and then the sphere comes out and 
and they're like, oh, they're activating. I'm picking up a large reading of chronometric waves, and they go time travel. And I'm like, the first thought in my head was, can they? Could they have always done that? What was that? Is that a new thing? Can they do that all the time? Why haven't they done that before? And it wasn't like, holy shit, that's time travel. Dear God, this is a big deal. It's like, all right, we'll go follow them. And they do. And I, and I remember, for me, when they do that, the movie just grinds to a near halt in my mind. And then this is the first movie that's directed by Jonathan Franks, uh, who Franks. had been directing Franks. Sorry. Uh, and he had been uh, directed. He had directed a number of the television shows. It's still produced by Berman and it's written by the same duo that did Generations. And I just felt for me, just none of the kind of subplots clicked like the like you said with the Borg Queen. I agree with you. The Borg Queen's kind of antithetical. You could see where they're what they were trying to do with it. But her whole whole the whole subplot with her and Data just to me was weird. It just I I felt really awkward and and like not uncomfortable in in a cinematic way. Just uncomfortable in a ooh this doesn't work for me. See, ooh, I, this, I, I, I mean I always thought it was un uncomfortable, but it was supposed to be a very odd, uncomfortable sexual kind of. No, I and I know what you mean, and that's not the kind of uncomfortable I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the uncomfortable as in like this is cinematically cringeworthy because it's not working for me. But I knew where I know where you're coming from, right. and then. The whole sequence on the on Earth, it was nice to see Lieutenant Barkley again. I thought yeah. his yeah. that that little cameo was actually really kind kind of neat. And I understand where you're coming from with the Zephyr and Cochran stuff. It just for me, it just didn't work. I don't know. It just none of it came through for me. And I and I like Jonathan Frakes. And again, I just felt and I like the character Riker. And I just felt just he was he was underutilized. They didn't really do much with him. And a number of the characters they didn't seem to do much with. It was very Picard centered. And the Picard stuff was good. I just would have preferred it in a different context. And then they had this character Lily, who was from the 21st century, who they bring up into into the Enterprise. And that character just annoyed the hell out of me. And her only purpose in the film was to yell at Picard at a key moment in the plot to get him to change his mind. And I had a difficult time re-watching this film because it just, for me, it didn't work. I just wish it had been something different. But I, I understand that a lot of people like this one. This one, I think, is generally considered the best of the four. Yes. I think amongst fans. Yeah. And with Frank's, Frank's directing, I will say this. I, I usually like it, but there were a lot of weird kind of cuts that I didn't like. Particularly, I'm thinking of the scene with the deflector dish. There was There's just strange edits. Like, there's a Lieutenant Hawk there's a Borg, there's one very specific part where a Borg is walking towards Lieutenant Hawk and he picks up his rifle and then it cuts away. And when it come back, cuts back to Lieutenant Hawk, he's still mucking around with the deflector. So there's a couple of weird edits jarred me a little bit. It's it's funny you mentioned that. The only it just, That just triggered something in my mind. One of those great little film, little bits of trivia, whatever, that, that weave their way through film all over the place. Mm-hmm. If you look carefully at the console that they're operating, mm -hmm. the deflector dish is an AE-35 unit. And uh -huh. the AE-35 unit is the piece of equipment in 2001 that Hal tells tells the guys. Oh, my God, yes. It That's is. interesting. And if you, if you watch, that, the, the Alpha Echo 35 unit will just quietly wind its way in and out of science fiction mm. basically since, since 2001. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's just one of those little Easter eggs they put in. And I love it. I love it any time that thing shows up. I was just listening to Ready Player One, and I can't remember the context of it, but yeah, there was something else they were referring to as an AE-35, and I was like, oh, I love that. Mm. No, that, that is a cool little Easter egg. I, I didn't I didn't know that. That's cool. So let's go to Insurrection. 
because this one I didn't like the first time I saw it and I rewatched it recently and I actually kind of liked it. I actually think of the four, while I do feel it, just, it kind of like let down that the, the whole, the four films were kind of mediocre. This is the one I actually enjoyed the most, believe it or not. See, I think this is the one that at least conceptually like from a plot perspective mm-hmm. is the weakest. Hmm. I think the whole, the whole Sona Baku thing just doesn't work very well. And I think it, it, at times this movie gets really goofy. Hmm. I think there's a lot of great action. I think it's a lot of fun, but I don't think, I think this is the weakest of the four. Hmm. It was funny when I rewatched it. One, I thought the kind of zip in the scripts that I had been talking about with the previous films, because I actually watched Star Trek six before I kind of went into these again. The zip I saw in this where and this one was written by um, Michael Piller. And I enjoyed kind of the the pacing and the tightness of, of the dialogue in the script in this one. And I thought this was the first one where they really found how to make the character dynamics work and they figured out ways to make characters do things where even if they were minor moments in the movie, they were still relevant actions that you felt like those cast members were making impacts in the in the story. I'll agree with and, that with the exception of Data because Data just gets so goofy and silly. He does, yeah. I, I actually, believe it or not, I thought it was, I actually kind of enjoyed that to an extent. This was the, Data throughout the four will plays like a really big role and this is actually one of the uh, more Data light of the four, I think, yeah, at least I think in my that, opinion. I think Brent Spiner got a better agent somewhere in the middle of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah like probably. Somewhere between, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of next gen because the Data stuff ramps up. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. The data stuff definitely ramped up. But I also enjoyed it because while the the premise is kind of weird, you've got this planet. Basically, the idea is that the Federation is trying to relocate a very small group of people off a planet in a kind of scuzzy part of space because this particular planet is essentially the cosmic fountain of youth because it's got magic radiation rings around it. That, that's the basic premise. And it's, again, one of those things you kind of have to go along with. And the idea, the reason why I kind of liked it was in science fiction, I've always felt that you should have a kind of moral question to answer in science fiction. That what are, are we, should, we should have moral intuitions and science fiction is should be designed to challenge our moral intuitions using changes in technology and, and hypotheticals about different species and the different abilities of technology. And the, to me, even though they don't harp on this, it's not a, a, a major focus, it at least raises a, a, an interesting question where you have a very small group of people who are living on this planet that is essentially a fountain of youth, and the Federation and Sona want to remove them from this planet so they can harvest the rings, the radiation in the rings, but it will render the planet uninhabitable. And I, at least I that conundrum existed, and I and I liked it for that. And I also like they gave Riker stuff to do. Yeah, so uh, I, I, again, I that, kind of enjoy that more. That to me, though, just a lot of that setup feels antithetical to what they've established in the past in terms of the Federation and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it was just, there was a lot more suspension. I agree with that. There's a lot yeah, more I, suspension I, of disbelief to start with, that you said, and I just kind of just never got behind it. Now, your suspension of disbelief was with the the, the, the basic premise or the, the fact that the Federation would do what they're doing? Well, I mean, that's part of the basic premise. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fountain of use thing, I mean, okay, we've seen weirder things in Star Trek. We really have. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine. But like... It is weird. It's, it's one of the... Every time you I watch a Star Trek movie, you get to that moment like, oh, that's weird. What What is... That's weird. All right, fine. That's how I have to approach Star Trek every time. You get that moment. Ah, we, all right, fine, whatever. Just let's see where they go with this. Yeah, it just it all just seemed super out of character for things that have been established for at this point, you know, decades and months worth worth of 
physical television, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can literally watch Star Trek nonstop for probably over a month. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes, this goes against, kinda, I think, the general feel of that. It's it's one mm-hmm. thing, I think, for, like, to have, you know, have the rogue, like, uh, the rogue admiral. Yeah. But the fact that the rogue admiral is basically, is operating on everyone else's behalf. Like he's he actually has approval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think if I think if they had played it off as no, I'm just doing this because I think this is the, what the best thing I should do, you know to do is. Uh-huh. I think I would have bought that better. Real okay. I yeah, I guess I, I remember hearing that from certain fans. It certainly was something I was on board with because I liked the idea of making Picard the rogue. Like he was kind of like sticking it to the man. In my mind, that's what I, I thought was really interesting. But I see where you're coming from. I think the only stuff about it that I thought was a little strange was his his relationship with the the Baku woman. Oh shoot, I forgot the actor his name what was her name donna murphy that's it i thought her the scenes with them were a little they didn't do much for me as an actor she she just kind of odd as an actress like i didn't yeah that was that could be it and there's a whole scene where she somehow like stops time right slows time down and picard's like how are you doing this and she's like don't ask questions and it doesn't come into play ever again it just happens i remember just why is this why what was the point of this this it didn't do it didn't do anything for me but other than that again i I actually enjoyed this one watching it i thought the script was tighter thought the f murray abraham's always fun f murray abraham was fun super campy yeah super yeah he was and I, I, I just the stuff with Frakes, uh, Commander Riker and and Jordy on the Enterprise fighting the Sona ships. I thought that was pretty cool. I really wish they they did a cool battle. It just that was the thing that was missing through most of these Star Trek movies was kind of a cool ship to ship battle. Yeah, because it always looks like the Enterprise is running away or getting its ass whooped and has to come up with a novel way of winning. Yeah. Every now and again, I like to see the Enterprise just smack the crap out of someone like, dude, we're the Enterprise. Stop. Yeah, I like to see that. But other than that, again, I this was the one that kind of like I had a change of heart on. Like, I was like, you know what? I didn't like this one when I first saw it. Now I'm like, you know what? This one's not so bad. This right. one's not so bad. All right, so on to Star Trek Nemesis. Oh my God, Nemesis. So where do, where do we get on this one? So so here's my thing. This is the one I watched and I looked at it and I said, you know, there are a lot of problems with this film, Yep. but I like the concept. I like the idea better than I liked Insurrection. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a much stronger concept that they just flubbed the shit out of. Mm. How do you mean? I think the idea of, I mean, especially with some of the Romulan stuff that you, know, you see in Next Generation and characters like uh, Sila, mm-hmm. that that the idea of a Picard clone and kidnapping the actual Picard, like that whole plan doesn't is not out of the realm of possible for these characters. Right. There's so, something about clones, so, though, that just rub me the wrong way when you see them on screen. I don't know what it is, but just clones feel like a really, to me, just like a cheap plot device. Maybe. I mean, I think the fact that 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 the character of Shins on of of, of you know Tom Tom Hardy's character mm-hmm. because he is able to better define himself, mm-hmm. like he like he was a clone, but he was abandoned as a kid. So, right. So he he has evolved separately from from Picard. You got that nature versus nurture type yeah. battle going on. Yeah. In general, I think it he was a. I really liked him as a as a character. I mean, it's also it's also fun seeing a really young, really skinny Tom Hardy. Yeah, that that was kind of. Uh, it this, is still kind of jarring. This isn't Bane. No, it's not. Or, or you know, the kind of critically acclaimed Tom Hardy that we're used to seeing in the Chris Nolan films. Yeah, but no, I mean, I I, I it's got a lot a lot of problems mm-hmm. but i think the concept was at least solid yeah and, i mean it's basically you know, that i really like the romulans and we don't usually get to see very much of them because they tend to be the the, the secret more secretive society right and they and they generally suck so <laughs> that's just what happens to them i like romulans too but as you know i've always said that romulans just always suck just bad things happen to them they do and i mean the opening scene of this movie is the entire romulan senate getting dissolved literally yeah yeah like straight up like damn 
Romulans suck. I, and then, like, their warbirds show up to fight Shinzon's warbird. And it's like, oh, that's cool. These are cool new warbirds. And it, they're captained by Dizzy from Starship Troopers. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, they got crushed. Man, the Romulans suck. Man, do they suck. Just And then later on, their home world blows up. God, bad things happen to Romulans. I agree with you. The concept's a little strange, but it is certainly a, a more tangible concept than previous films. And the execution is just a little wonky. But I do remember seeing this movie back in 2002 and it being fun to watch. It is. Even that, though it is that kind of weird. battle at the end is great. Yeah, that was the, that was the thing, is we were talking about if, if the conversation about the previous four movies with the spaceship battles kind of suck. They kind of don't deliver. And finally we get this spaceship battle where, you know, it's edited properly and it's timed properly and the music score works and, you know, the ships are shooting at each other and they're trying to outduel each other. It was kind of reminiscent of the battle in Star Trek VI where they're fighting a cloaked vessel. So I found that I found the action sequences to be fun to watch, even though I understand where people are coming from. It just doesn't feel as Star Trekky as it should have. No, and I, I, mean, see, and there I are, see where people are coming from. There are issues like the scimitar is just so idiotically overpowerful. Yeah, it's crazy how well, the opening sequence they talk about. It's got like, what, 52 disruptor banks, 20, 20 something torpedo bays. It's, you know, big three times the size of the Enterprise. It can fire while cloaked with shields. Like, really? You're right, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it, just, it violates a lot of rules that Star Trek had, had set up for a long time. Yeah, totally. And you know, my pet peeve is don't violate the rules you set up in your own universe. Right. You can make them weird, right? You can make them weird. And that was kind of the problem with Generations. They seemed to be breaking their own rules as they went along, or they were just making up irrational ones. Right. And you're entirely right, is the whole sequence with the scimitars, as fun as it was, broke all the rules. Yeah. And for Star Trek fans, you're like, what's going on? And for non-Star Trek fans who are just coming into a movie, they're like, what the hell is this thing? You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, just... why doesn't everybody have that? Exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's entirely correct. I, I also do like the fact that we finally get, they f it's a little bit of a retcon, but the fact that, that Romulans and Remans are actually separate races. Yeah, that was interesting to me. I don't... And Ron Perlman was the Viceroy. Ron, Ron Perlman was the Viceroy. And what got me about the Ron Perlman, <laughs> here's the thing that about the Ron Perlman Viceroy is his, like, fist fight with Riker and how he, like, falls down right. that, that long chasm what is it with science fiction starships <laughs> and having giant chasms in them what what is that they all have it i need to, i need to find down. that i need to find that scene from galaxy quest when they talk about that oh oh shoot i don't remember that when they're like remember they, they find like the special weapon that, that like always gets referred to but never gets used uh-huh oh yeah yeah, yeah and they're yeah, like yeah, walking yeah. along like like and tim was just like what what the hell's with the chasm and then like, he looks up and there's like the, what, the weapon there but yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, my, my brother and I talk about this, like how much space there there is in these starships. How much like, space you and there I, is in space? Yeah, there's a lot of space, space, but there's like a like these these starships are super roomy, and you and I work with ships. Yeah, it's never gonna be that roomy. I work, ever. With, I work with submarines. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, ever. Know, it's cozy. No. Yeah. Really good. Ever. But yeah, never, there's not much to say about them. I get and look. The big thing is, you know, again, I always felt when I first saw the movie that they were trying to. This movie was basically a retread of greatest hits from the whole franchise. That's the way I always looked at it was that they were trying to trying to pick up things from First Contact, Undiscovered Country, Wrath of Khan and try and make it kind of like that. That's the way I, I felt. 
And while at least it, the end product is as is pleasant, it's not as pleasant as those previous films. So I think most of the fans. See, I don't feel like it was a retread of that kind of stuff, but I I, I always felt like it was more like it, it was it was desperate. Like th- there was there was a, a sense of desperation in this because they knew okay, First Contact did pretty well, Insurrection didn't do well. Mm-hmm. This film is either make or break. Either we either we make more. If this one does well, we make more. This one doesn't do well, we're done. Yep. And, yeah, I mean, I, I can agree with that also. And, I can and agree with yeah, that also. It just it re of desperation and like what else can we do to like get people into this what else you know what else can we do what else can we do no i i i think that's true too i think that's also the case i I see i can see both of those happening and and interesting that the screenplay is by john logan and story by john logan rick berman who i again i call mr star trek and then uh data assisted in the writing of this one interesting brett spiner is is, has a story credit and i i remember watching an interview with him talking about it and kind of like putting data to bed and i remember this movie came out in 2002. I think I was a senior in high school at the time. I might have been a junior. And I had other friends who were fans of Star Trek. They were very bothered by the death of Data. And to me, it felt like a natural bookend. I don't know. How did how did you respond to it? I remember being upset at the time, but I see it better now. Okay. Yeah. I also remember, like, going to go see this movie. And I, I like, I timed traffic wrong or something. Oh, God. I, so I got, to the, I got to the mall I was going to see it at. And I literally had to run from the other side of the mall. Oh, God. And, like, I didn't run like through the mall because it was like it came out like a couple days before I, I think I went and saw it a couple days before Christmas when I, I literally think I ran yeah the release date was December 13th 2002 yeah so I saw it not long before Christmas I literally ran around the mall uh, like through the parking lot like the perimeter the sidewalk around the building yeah, no like I also because nope. it, it was Christmas so I, I had to park way at the ass end of the parking lot oh god so I literally ran around like the perimeter of the mall parking lot to get there <laughs> Oh my God! I like must, I must have run, I must have run vehicle. almost a half mile. God, and we all know you don't do running. No, although at that point I did running much better. You did running better, okay? Yeah, I was still, you know, in in somewhat better shape then. But running's still not fun. No. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Never fun. Right. My brother does it recreationally. I don't understand how he does it. It's because your brother's mentally ill. He is, yeah. This is what happens. If you're a captain in the army, you got to be a little bit crazy. Yeah. you got to be a little bit crazy. Yeah, I, there's not much to say about this one. This one is fun. I'd watch it again. I would, you know, I remember when I first saw it, and I still feel this way. I would have liked to have seen the Titan. I thought that would have yeah, been cool. Yeah, I want to see it. I want to see the Titan. Now, you and I both play Star Trek Online, so we now know what the Titan is supposed to look like, because uh, one of the ships in, one of the science vessels in Star Trek Online is, is the Titan. Titan, if you read the blurb, it's like, oh, this is what real Riker ship looked like. But like, I would have rather have seen the Titan in this movie. Yeah, I would have rather will Riker show up because I actually like right when Riker does things and they really let Jonathan Frakes be Riker. He's very charismatic. Oh, yeah. Really had if they give him right, the good material. He's great. He has. We noticed this when we watched Insurrection. He has a fantastic smile. The scene in going back to Insurrection where he goes into Deanna Troy's office and he's like, I think I need counseling. Yeah, he's great. He's I- got this as a, as a side note, that's not the first time she kissed him with a beard. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> there, no, there's there's a scene in Next Gen. I can't remember what episode, but she actually okay. does. Okay, cool. I do I do like, but I did like that scene. I kiss you and you say yuck. Yeah. I thought that was, that was cool. But I just also, also when they're in the tub and she's shaving and the admiral calls, can I get back to you for a minute? Oh yeah. It's like I'm a little busy, Mr. Wharf. <laughs> can I get back to you? Yeah. I thought I do I do like him. I wish they did more with him. 
and I and I it's interesting the, the the character dynamics are really interesting to me in this whole franchise just looking at a big picture is the Picard character I feel like towards the end they were trying to make him kind of an action star right and and it was weird because that's not the Picard we've known since 87 by by 2002 he's been doing Picard 15 years right and it just seemed a little strange whereas to me I'm curious what you think about this you have you have Data Worf and Riker make them do the action scenes I want to see Worf stuff like at least when Worf was chopping a board that kind of was pretty cool or you know when he's smacking those little flyy things in insurrection he's like definitely feeling aggressive tendencies sir like yeah i that mean was fun i mean some of that you got to keep in mind we're also getting at least from wharf we are getting a lot of that in deep space nine at the time the action stuff yeah it's true but you know just in the context of the films i as i no, think I, I don't films, i don't people are not are really just being reintroduced to the franchise i imagine a lot of people who are watching the show or watch the movies, but also a good chunk of them aren't. I don't, I don't disagree with you on that. I'm just saying from a, a larger context at the same time that, especially like first contact is going on. Mm-hmm. You've got the same things going on. You've got Worf, Worf now on Deep Space Nine too. Yeah. The Dominion War, first contact and insurrection, they straddle the Dominion Wars. They happen in between those, right? Or are yeah, they yes. going on during one of them? No, that's, they straddle. Okay. That's what I thought. Cause they've, they've got to have time to rebuild the Defiant after, 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 the battle after the Borg fight yeah does that appear in deep space nine do they mention that does that ever get mentioned i don't think so okay deep space remind me again what years deep space nine ran from it was like 90 uh, give me 394 to what uh Jan- i think it's january of 93 until um hang on a second january of 93 till june of 99 that's what i thought i knew it was it, they, they they finished in the 90s yeah that's what i thought and voyager it finishes in 2001 i believe so because it would have to because admiral Ray is in nemesis and that's 2002 Yep. So so Voyager runs from when? 98 to 2001? No, Voyager oh. runs from like 95 to 2001. 95 to 2001. It's, okay. a, it's, a, it's either end of 94 or beginning of 95. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. So the timeline is there. Yeah. And it's what's interesting to me is that Nemesis was basically the unofficial bookend of the, what I, I actually think of as kind of the golden age of, of Star Trek from 87 to 2002. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. The next gen, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and then these movies, Undiscovered Country, Generations, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. This is kind of this whole Nemesis just kind of ends and it's a, and it feels like an unfortunate end because you know we don't see another Star Trek until we get to the Abrams movies. Yeah, we do get Enterprise, but that's a uh, you know the, there are there are things I like about Enterprise, but there are things that are garbage about Enterprise. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> yeah. that is a whole nother um, podcast. So uh, yeah, totally. So I, I'm curious your overview of the four next gen films. Just give going back and rewatching them now and trying to look at them a little more critically. How do you feel about them? Because I actually I think I've increased my opinion of them. I think I, I'm a little I don't think they're great, but I do enjoy them more than I think I was too harsh on them when I first watched them. Maybe the exception of I still have pretty sour feelings about First Contact, but overall my opinion of them have improved on repeat recent viewing how about you i would say my opinions on them they've i think they've all altered a little bit mm-hmm. but i think ov- overall it's not one one way or the other for for all of them okay like i said i'm a little more harsh on insurrection i'm a little less harsh on nemesis mm-hmm. um, i'm a little less nostalgic on generations than i used to be mm. Yeah, just because like Generations was the first Star Trek movie I saw in in theaters, and right. I and I have a very distinct memory of seeing it with my with my dad. But favorite part of that whole movie is when they're about to crash into the planet, and Data goes, "Oh shit!" The audience I saw it with, I still remember them loving it. I do too. Yeah, but aside from that, I mean, I, I'm I I still 
I still enjoy watching them a lot. Mm-hmm. No, I do too. There's still a lot if of fun. There's, if there's one you're going to put in, you're going to rewatch again and again and again. It's going to be, for you, it's going to be First Contact? Yes. Yeah. See, for me, that's the one thing is I don't know if I can pick one that I would want to watch again. I think if I want to give, an, believe it or enough, I want to give another one a try, I'd actually probably watch Nemesis again because at least it was exciting. There's something, there's an excitement to it. Even though you're you're entirely right, there's lots of problems with it. No, but I can see that. I mean, there are plenty of movies that I think you and I both watch, just, you know, we'll put on in the background for noise you're like this isn't good but it's at least fun yeah i again i feel the same way about with with star trek 6 just it's so much for me it's so much fun but when you really sit down and think about it god there's a lot of problems it's kind of stupid so all right what have you been into so i actually speaking of movies to watch again and again and again in the past week i've watched magic mike twice that's the steven soderbergh movie starring channing tatum and matthew mcconaughey as male strippers in tampa florida right there's not to be confused with the the sequel magic mike triple xl but the but the first one and that's a really good movie it's really really good i like i want to get more into soderbergh i've seen a few of his movies and i am amazed i like his eye i like the he has an orange tint to the movie every for every exterior shot has an ex an orange tint and the only time the tint goes away is during the kind of male review scenes uh he has a way of making actors better or even like mediocre actors seem really natural and really great like i'm not a fan of olivia munn but she's pretty darn good in this and i think that has a lot to do with soderbergh's directing and her boobs are fantastic in this movie she's she's just okay but her boobs are are, are great i mean i'll be honest and, i really enjoy the oceans Ocean's Eleven trilogy. Yeah. Well, the, the second one's shit, but one, <laughs> one and three are just a lot of fun. Yeah, but he's also done... Yeah, I, I, I like those too, but like the, there are others that I haven't seen that I really want to now. Like I want to go, I want to see his Che Guevara movie uh, with Benicio Del Toro, and I want to see the one he did. I have seen the first half of that. That is very good. I have not yeah, gotten into the second half, but I didn't, yeah, realize, it, I didn't realize it was a, a film. So like I'm like an hour and 45 minutes in going, what the... F-? Right, it's like, it's two parts. It's like, and it I is. haven't seen them either. And then then I want to see his the movie he did with Sasha Gray called Girlfriend Experience because that was a mostly non-actor movie and I, I just just to see how he handles non-actors. He's a really great actor um, director, you know, an actor's director. Yeah. And and I would get I would just it's the original Magic Mike is more of a character drama than anything else. It's not a lighthearted beefcake comedy. The second movie is, but this one isn't. It's actually a really good character drama. So I I I really highly highly recommend it. And other than that, I finished Stranger Things 2. It took me almost 3 weeks to do it. Where I finished Stranger Things one in three days. I'm I'm heartbroken. I just think Stranger the season two. And I say this as a fan, someone who really loved the first the first season. Like I'm really bothered by this. This isn't just me trying to be critical about trying to be objectively critical about something I watched the way we try to do on this podcast. Like I have like a personal problem because I really loved the first season so much, and this season, the second season, is such a disappointment to me that it it does bother me. And there's like I can't think of something negative to say about the first season and I usually defend it against all detractors and the second season I have a really hard time finding something positive to say and it, it really bothers me because I was one of those people who were like the the minute season one ended the, like the second it went dark right after Will coughs up the little worm thing into his sink I go don't make another season just stop it right there and yeah I don't think if they make a season three I don't think I'm going to watch it I just think that I was that burned by this one okay so and, that, and that's really about it I got two new board games I got a unsurprisingly Napoleonic themed board game called balance of power which is actually it's kind of like a uh diplomacy style game at least i think uh and it's set in the year after 
Waterloo. So I wanted to give that a try, and I got it for $2. It's a $50 game I got for 2 bucks on, on a sale. And then I got a used game from Columbia Games. They make interesting block games called uh, Shenandoah, and it's just a block war game about the two months, May, June, 1862, of uh, Stonewall Jackson's campaign in the Shenandoah. So I'm getting curious to pluck that one. I don't have any... I have only one other Civil War game. Most of the games I war games I have take place in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. This is my first mid 19th century war game. Nice. Uh, let's see here. This week I well for, um, on Black Friday we went out and did, did some shopping. Got a whole brave man. Of, eh, I mean, if you go to like 10 o'clock, it's really not mm. that bad. The only place that we went that was a little crazy was Best Buy, and even that wasn't that bad. Okay, good. Talking to the poor guys who worked there. On the other hand, they're like, "Fuck my life." <laughs> did you ever see that South Park episode where Randy works either at a mall or or a Best Buy for Black Friday. No. And it's basically a Game of Thrones. Like, the the, the, the the employees of the mall are basically the Night's Watch. No, I haven't seen that. It's super worth it. It's like a three-part like arc, and it's really great. I mean, I've, I've got... I have talked to several GameStop employees, and I've got a friend now who who's, like, a, a supervisor there. And one of the things I did, I t- texted him, was like, are you still alive? <laughs> yeah, valid question. Although, actually, for them, apparently the worst day is the day after thanks, the day after Christmas for... With return with all the returns. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah, but uh, while we were out, I picked up Andy Weir's new book, Artemis. Andy Weir being the writer of The Martian. Oh, I've heard about this. Is this, this is the one about the moon? I think so. I'm I'm really yeah. excited to uh, to read. It's 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 a lot more of a a straight up science fiction than right. The Martian. Right. So I'm excited to read that. Yeah, let me know. I saw that he was. I saw an article where he was being interviewed, but I could, I didn't have time to sit down and read it. Yeah, uh, I started watching Runaways on Hulu, which is the new Marvel series mm-hmm. on Hulu. Basically, it's a bunch of kids who realize that their parents are supervillains. I'm mm. um, two episodes in, so basically the first episode is the introduction of the kids, and then the second episode is basically the same the same events, from, from, but from the parents' perspective. Mm-hmm. So I really haven't moved past that, that initial set of events. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and then well, the last couple of nights, I have been sitting down and working on a couple of Bandai Star Wars models. Oh, cool. So I've been finishing, oh. I finished the A-Wing finally. Yeah, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, and I've been, actually this afternoon I was doing panel lines on it, and then I finished the Snowspeeder last night. Mm. Speaking of Hulu, they have a show on there called Future Man that I've been watching with the girl in the background. Yeah. It's kind of a time travel sci-fi action comedy yeah and it's very it's very much like wing commander and terminator nice. and they know it because they say like the when they basically this character is playing a video game and he beats it and then the people come back in time saying you beat the video game you're going to help us lead the resistance and he nice. goes that's the plot from wing commander i <laughs> think like they say it nice so it's self-aware keith david's in it a couple other uh, well-known actors are in it it's pretty funny you know it's, it doesn't take the time travel serious which is the best part so it's it's pretty funny. It got it got a little out of hand. I thought a little crazy at one point when one of the time traveling warriors quits because he doesn't want to do it anymore and lives in the 80s from like 85 to 92 <laughs> and opens an underground sushi restaurant where nice. he kidnaps people to bring him to his restaurant. Like it gets a little insane, but uh, it's kind of fun if, you, if you're into that kind of stuff. I'd recommend it. Nice, pretty darn, especially if you like head explosions. It's um pretty good. Well, check it out. All right, all right, folks. If you like what we do, make sure you head on over to therefargeek.com. Check out our blog post and our podcast you can follow us on facebook instagram and twitter and you can find this podcast on itunes soundcloud stitcher and youtube so once again i'm andrew i'm the dude and you've been listening to therefore a geek